Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Pubs, Pints, People for February, everyone. We are virtually hosted this month by Burton-on-Trent, the legendary beer town and host of this month's Great British Beer Festival Winter. And I'll be speaking with Nick Antona, who's very much a part of the Burton branch, organising the GBBF Winter, and also happens to be Camera's national chairman. With me this month are my co-hosts Simon Webster and Claire Phillips. Yes, hello again. Um, it'll be good to be hearing from, from Nick because, of course, we heard from him when we were down in London and, uh, and good to be back here on the airwaves again. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. Uh, looking forward to digging into our theme this month, which is focusing on, on pubs in general. And I know we've got a couple of uh, fantastic interviews coming up shortly. Yes, as well as um, the Burton interviews that um, Alison's mentioned, we're focusing on pubs as well, in particular this episode, um, with Dr Claire Markham, who is from Nottingham Trent University, and she'll be telling us all about the importance of pubs. We also have our first ever live cook-along from our resident chef, Christian Gott, from his kitchen in Jersey, where he's combining real cider and some delicious seafood. Now, I've been enjoying following some of the pub tickers on social media for quite some time. These are the true devotees of the Good Beer Guide. They live and travel by it. And as it's the 50th anniversary of this venerable book, I thought it was a good time to chat to one of the better known. So from York, here's Cy Everett. So, Cy, please do explain what is a ticker for those of us who are not initiated. My aim is to visit all of the 4,500 pubs in any one given edition of the Good Beer Guide. The problem with that, of course, is that a new beer guide comes out every year, usually about September or October. So when that happens, I have to cross-tick all of the pubs to the previous editions and that normally means I lose a decent chunk of what I've done because obviously some pubs close or the new ones open and the quality declines in some places improves in others so the local camera branches obviously see fit to put different pubs in each year. So you have probably got as good a working knowledge of what's in the good beer guide as anybody I would imagine. Probably. I'm always flicking through it. Last year, the front cover of mine dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you have a very popular blog and you're also very popular on social media. Your major point is on Twitter, isn't it, Si? Twitter is about all I'm on, really, as well as doing a blog. I've got about 1,750 followers. It doesn't really go up gradually all the time, but when I have a week away in a new place for the first time, I do start getting noticed by local beer and pub fans and then they'll start following me. So I normally have spikes when that happens. How often do you get recognised? Because obviously I recognised you when you came to the Hop In a couple of years ago. I do post quite a few selfies of myself. It does help. I mean, not not often, but it has happened in some fairly unusual places. You know, I've walked into busy micropubs in Cambridge and somebody's just shouted, Brapper! Because Brapper is the British Real Ale pub adventure. That's what I call what I do. So the big question, of course, is with all this pubs coming and pubs leaving the Good Beer Guide, how many pubs do you think you visited in total? Well, I know approximately that I've visited about 4,200, which have been in any edition of any guide, but only 2,265 which are in the current one. So the gap between your kind of net total of your current guide and your gross total of all guides just grows and grows. It's crazy, really. You have some pretty strict rules for yourself, don't you, when you visit the pubs. So what's the rule when you go on one of your good beer guide visits? Firstly, I'd I'd have to take a photo of the outside of the pub so everyone can see that I've been. I'd have to stay for about 25 to 30 minutes in the pub and I have to have a pint measure of real ale. It never really started that it had to be ale, but every pub I've been to, I've had a pint of ale. And it makes sense, doesn't it, if you're visiting the beer guide? Most of the other tickers I know, they're a lot more effective than me because they just drink halves. So they can just be straight in and out, quick sip. Whereas what I like to do is kind of sit down, maybe get chatting to the locals, take a few photos and just feel like I've had an experience in each place I've visited. Yeah, and I think I think that's why your blog in particular is so appealing to people because you do get a real sense that you have had a chance to soak up the atmosphere and you seem to be a, a very garrulous sort of chap that always makes contact with somebody in the pub. You said that this little project started back in 2014. So what inspired you to take on this massive and almost lifelong endless undertaking, Si? I think probably you have to go back to the fact that when I first got into Real Ale in about 2001, I spotted this book called The Good Beer Guide just randomly in a secondhand bookshop in Leeds. Um, for a pound. It was a 1999 edition. And from then I thought, well, this would be perfect for our football away days because I'm a fan of Hull City and my favourite games going to were all the away games in interesting little places that I'd never been to before. And we were always looking for a good pre-match pub. But of course, before the good beer guide, you, you walk into a pub, you don't know if it's going to sell real ale at all. And if it does, you don't know what the quality is going to be like. So I started using it for that purpose, really. And I remember one of the very first trips was a trip to Kidderminster. And we found this pub in the back streets. And the quality of the beer was like nothing I'd ever tasted before. And I thought, so this is what real ale is supposed to really taste like then. And it just grew and grew from there, really. So I was doing that for about the next, you know, 13, 14 years. And then I thought, well, how about recreating this on a weekly basis 
you know, stop going to the home games and then just using the beer guide to find pubs and start ticking them off, really. So that's what I did. That's quite an interesting uh, transition between football fan to superstar ticker that you are now. What's the rest of the ticking community like? I read another gentleman called Retired Martin, who I know you've bumped into once or twice on your uh, travels. But, but what's the rest of the ticking community like, Sai? We're all very supportive of each other. They actually invited me a couple of years ago to join a little WhatsApp group. I think there's seven of us in it all together. There's me, Martin, and, and five others who either aren't on Twitter and stuff at all or they don't tend to um, tweet much. And really, we just kind of give each other tips on uh, things like awkward opening hours or if we've spotted a pub in the guide, which maybe was in a previous edition under a different name. They're absolute professionals, most of these guys. They actually, they're actually football ground tickers as well, most of them, apart from me and Martin. I think they all are. They're really all about the ticks, so they make much more progress than me, but they're kind of not as visible on social media and stuff. I mean, I write a blog about everything I do, but obviously takes up a lot of time when maybe I could be visiting extra pubs, but I like doing it the way I do it. So that's that's fine. We very much enjoy your observations. So uh, we're glad you take the time to share with us your experiences. We can all vicariously tick through <laughs> you. <laughs> yes. I always tell people I pubs are my main passion and the beer comes second. I don't know if people actually believe that. But... Uh, as, a, as a publican, I, I love that. <laughs> So what's the average sort of month of a ticker like? What sort of thing do you get up to? Thursdays and Saturdays are usually my pub ticking days. And then most of the other evenings, I'll be writing a blog, try and do it once a day, but I don't quite manage it. You also really do need to set plenty of time apart to plan your trips because the whole working out how to get from A to B, booking train tickets for the cheapest price as possible, you know, if you need to be on a bus, do you know what bus route you're on? Can you maybe get like a day ticket to save yourself a bit of money? If you've got a long walk to do, is it actually wise to walk along the road? Sometimes you have to kind of look at Google Street View to, to see if there's pavements and stuff like that. There's so many considerations, you know, and then I might have the odd holiday week where I'm away for a week at a time and I'm trying to like visit six pubs a day for about seven or eight consecutive days, which takes its toll, but it's worth it. I used to uh, work as part of a field-based team and we used to do a lot of that booking and logistics and it's quite a job. So I'm thoroughly impressed with your dedication to do all of that. Any particularly memorable experiences that stick in your mind from all your years of pub visits and ticking? I think one of my most favourite places I ever went was the Isle of Man because it was somewhere so unique. It was about five years ago now, but I, I remember it so clearly. I think going to an island's always quite exciting. It was snowing on and off all week, so that was kind of atmospheric. I was staying in a lovely little guest house in Douglas. There was a man on Twitter who, who lived on the Isle of Man who volunteered to drive me around to the more difficult pubs, so that was lovely. And even though it was winter, even though a lot of it was midweek, the pubs were busy. Everyone was really kind of happy and crazy, and it kind of felt like a throwback to a time that I've never lived through or experienced. Something almost quite magical about the holiday, really. And, and it was so easy to get around. There were buses all around the island and, and it, it was quite beautiful too. So I'd, I'd really recommend it. I know you've been to so many pubs. I know you obviously you appreciate them all, but is there anything or are there a couple that stick in your mind? 
The Black Horse in Preston. There you go, for starters. I absolutely love that pub. It's got everything because it's one of these heritage grade two listed pubs. So it's incredibly ornate, but it sells fantastic beers, strong beers as well, like Robinson's Old Tom and sometimes Titanic Plum Porter, the Grand Reserve edition. It's just such a lovely place to be, but it also has a nice, easy atmosphere where everybody seems to be happy and welcoming. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And any any close to you that you regularly visit? Are you a regular anywhere? Well, I'm never really a regular anywhere because I'm always I'm always out and about somewhere else. But where I live in York, I've, I've probably got about six or seven pubs within about a ten or twenty minute radius of me, which I would deem as above average good beer guide pubs. The Fox Inn, which is out over in Holgate, is probably my favourite because it's a beautiful, multi-roomed, old Osset pub. It used to be a Tedley's pub. Osset took it over and they managed to renovate it, keep keeping in all the old features. And I love the Osset beers anyway. That's a real favourite. And then also within about 10 minutes of me, I've got the Golden Ball, the Maltings, York Tap, Swan, Slip In, Acorn. So they're there are really, really loads of fantastic pubs near me, yeah. I'm lucky. I think there may be many listeners like me feeling very envious of your list there of local fantastic real ale pubs. It sounds amazing. So all this travelling and having to drink pints as you do, do you have any favourite beers that you would give a name check to at Carscales? The older I'm getting, I'm finding I'm going for the more darker styles now. So, you know, the traditional bitters. I mentioned Titanic Plum Porter before because I like my stouts and my porters. One traditional beer I really like is um, Bass because it's got a bit of a cult following behind it as well. And I know there's a lot of people out there who think it's, you know, just a bit of a boring brown bitter, but I think it's fantastic. And there's even a chap on my Twitter who has a Bass directory and he kind of tries to keep a record of which pubs sell bass. I can't not mention uh, Fuller's ESB because quite often when I'm down in London, I will have my final pint in the parcel yard at King's Cross. If I was wanting to go for a lighter, poppier beer, uh, Oakham Citra is a big favourite of mine. And I love uh, White Rat, which is a more local beer, which is an Osset one that they do up here quite a lot. Terrific choices. Sai, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being such an advocate of the Good Beer Guide and pubs and car scale in general. You're a real uh, good example to all of us (laughs) cask beer lovers. No, thank you, Alison. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Cheers. Wow. I mean, just wow. I've just picked up my edition of the Good Beer Guide, which up until today I thought was fairly well-thumbed and had quite a bit of um, green highlighter in it but just having a quick look through actually I think this probably looks in pristine condition <laughs> compared to what size must must look like I can only imagine my, my copy is actually I'm, I'm looking at the uh, 50th anniversary copy so mine's is is very pristine uh, I, I can't imagine how it contrasts to to Cy Everett's and uh, I now have this this picture mental picture of him cross-checking his latest version against previous versions to make sure he carries through all that important information and pubs that he's highlighted. I bet he doesn't actually uh, ever use the app though which I know you're a fan of Alison. Absolutely Um, I mean I admire him for carrying his wee book around with him along with his mascots and all his snacks that he talks about on Twitter but I'm a big fan uh, of the Good Beer Guide app which is downloadable from wherever you get your apps 
Um, and it's super convenient because it's on my phone and wherever I'm planning a trip or if I'm traveling there and then, I can look up any good beer guide pubs. I can look up all pubs on this wonderful app, but particularly focusing in on where the good beer guide pubs are. It will help to direct me and I'm very keen on registering which pubs I visited and I use the national beer scoring system on the app as well. So you can tap on the little button that says beer scoring and there and then rate the beer that you're drinking. So it's a really good way of contributing uh, to the accuracy of the good beer guide. So it's a fantastic little tool. I, I can see though why Cy Everett might prefer the book. I mean, if you if you spill a bit of beer on the book, it's not an actual disaster. If you spill a little bit of beer while you're using the app all over your phone, it is an actual disaster. <laughs> but that brings us rather nicely to our We're Only Here for the Beer feature, which we do every episode, of course. We we delve into our copies of the Good Beer Guide or, or perhaps we swipe on the app to find some of the pubs that are on our lists to tick as well. So I'll start with one that if you're heading to the GBBF Winter Festival and making a weekend of it in, in the area, then it's really worth a drive out from Burton to another Staffordshire pub that had been on my must-visit list for some time until I managed to get there uh, probably a few years ago now, before the pandemic anyway, and, and that's the Yew Tree Inn at Calden, which is not far from Leek. Now, this pub, it's, it's like taking a step back in time when you visit. It does, of course, feature in the Good Beer Guide, but actually the beer is probably the least interesting thing about this pub. They, they have a number of real ales, notably Burton Bridge Bitter, but inside it's just this Aladdin's cave of all sorts of things. There's a motorbike in there, for example. And we found it a really welcoming place as well when we visited um, back a, a couple of years ago. I, I can't really do it justice here, but if you've not heard of it, have a look online. And I think they've got a 1940s event coming up in April, which sounds like just the sort of thing that, that is exactly what the pub's all about. It sounds a lot of fun. Definitely sounds like a pub to visit if I'm up uh, up, in, up that way in, in Burton. Uh, the pub I'd like to recommend from the Good Beer Guide this month is the Ship and Shovel, which is below Charing Cross Station in London. I actually popped in a couple of weeks ago with regular listener to the show, James Merrick, who's leaving London and moving up to Macclesfield. Enjoyed a pint of Badger's Thirsty Ferret, which I'm sure is known to many of our listeners. The pub itself is, is terrific. It's divided into two halves uh, across the alleyway, which you walk down to get to the pub. And uh, the Good Beer Guide helped me learn that the pub commemorates Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel, whose fleet was grounded off the Scilly Isles in 1707 with the loss of 2,000 men. Well, that's a, a London classic, that pub, Simon. Uh, and it's in a really central location, so it's a great one to recommend. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had a wonderful trip to Sheffield and had a fantastic time visiting pubs. I think we got into about eight different pubs from the Good Beer Guide while we were there. And there were some fabulous beers and experiences, all really varied. We really enjoyed Callum Island. The museum there is fascinating. And there are a wealth of pubs, including the Fat Cat, where I enjoyed a Callum Island Pale Rider. And there's the Callum Island Tavern, the Shakespeare's Ale and Cider House. And we really enjoyed the wonderful list of real ciders at the Harlequin. There's some real obvious cider love and passion there. And I had a couple of great ones from Newton Court Cider. I also picked up Beer Matters, the local camera magazine while I was there, and I learned that one of my favourite central Sheffield favourites, um, Fagans, is going through some changes. The licensees, Tom and Barbara Bolding, are retiring after an incredible 37 years. We're wishing them a wonderful, well-earned retirement and a bright future for Fagans. Well, the night I was there, they had musicians jamming with fiddles and guitars, and the atmosphere was great and the beer's super fresh. It's a couple of years since I've been to Sheffield, but. Uh... 
those pubs you've just run through, like the Fat Cat, for example, I've never been to. So I have a growing list of pubs I intend to visit on my next visit to, to the city. Yeah, I haven't been to the Fat Cat in, in Sheffield either. I was at college, at Richmond College, which shows how long ago it was, because I don't think that exists anymore um, in, in Sheffield, about 30 years ago. Um, and I did go to quite a few pubs, actually, with my student friends, but um, but not the Fat Cat. So there's there's quite a few that I need to, to go back and revisit in, in Sheffield. Now, in line with the theme of this episode, which is focusing on pubs, we're going to hear now from Stella Sims, who's chatting with Dr Claire Markham, who's the Senior Lecturer in Sociology and Criminology at Nottingham Trent University. Claire's conducted some really interesting research which reveals that pubs have an economic, social and cultural role to play, which all benefit the communities that they are rooted in. She's also identified a knowledge gap around what happens when a village's pub closes. What's remarkable, as you'll hear in the interviews, is that Claire herself doesn't like alcohol. For her, going to the pub is all about meeting friends and keeping up with what's happening in her village. I've lived in a village all my life, and during that period, I've seen kind of pubs, shops, post offices come, go, close, reopen. Whilst people have looked at the impact of, say, post offices, they've never really looked at the pub. For me, that was a kind of a knowledge gap that is really important that we understand what pubs mean to communities, what they mean to individuals, and particularly how when they close, the impact of that closure can impact negatively on communities, villages, individuals, local economies, a whole range of aspects. That's really interesting. It's the pub as a social space and a place in in the village and the community, not just as a place for drinking. If you take me as an example, I don't drink. I don't like the taste of alcohol, but I still go to the pub quite regularly because to me, those spaces are more than just being able to drink. They're about meeting people. They're about getting to know what's happened either in the village or in the local area. Also, for me, they're a way of getting to connect to the past. If you take my local, I know that my grandparents, for example, used to go there. And I know where they used to sit. And there's something quite nostalgic for me about being able to remember them in those spaces. So you've done some research into the role of pubs in the community. Can you go a bit deeper into how you actually carried out that research? What did your research consist of? It was 66 interviews across 25 villages speaking to various people from village residents through to publicans through to other service providers around kind of their perceptions and experiences of the village pub and what it means to them. It was a grounded theory piece of research. The ideas came from what people said to me rather than me finding ideas and testing them. The research found that pubs are more than drinking. They have an economic role they have a social role, they have a cultural role, and all those three roles link together. For example, if you can get the cultural atmosphere of the pub right, people will enjoy spending time there. If people spend time there, they often will spend money in there. I guess your research would probably provide good data for people who want to create a successful pub in many ways. My PhD actually does have a chapter on practice, which highlights what my research shows aspects that somebody may or may not want to adopt or try within their kind of pub. 
it is worth saying that my findings were based on rural Lincolnshire. So some of the findings will be unique to the areas where the research took place. It's about kind of looking at the localities as well and looking at what people want within those spaces. Other than being a place to drink, can you give a few interesting examples of pubs acting as community hubs and social spaces and other uses, I suppose, other than just being a place to drink alcohol? Basically, when you think about kind of pubs in rural Lincolnshire, a lot of people are wanting what I've turned in my research as hybrid, by which I mean they want a lot of the modern comforts of today's living. For example, Wi-Fi, good food, a range of different drinks, alcohol and non-alcohol mixed with some of the more traditional aspects of what they think rural pubs used to be like. Last orders bell, open fire, swinging sign, a pub with a traditional name. I call that hybrid because obviously if we're thinking about traditional village pubs historically, we're tending to think about spit and sawdust, but people don't want that. They want the kind of the more nostalgic rose tinted pieces of the traditional pub mixed in with the comforts of the modern pub. A lot of pubs now are using things like book clubs, offering coffee. Pubs are often acting in rural areas as warm spaces. Older people in my research, for example, would often talk about going to their local pub to um, engage in the library that was there and have a coffee with their friends. So they were using it more as a coffee shop facility. Then they were kind of using the books off the back of that, engaging in quiz nights. That led to them feeling more comfortable going into those spaces in the more, if you like, traditional pub opening hours. There was a few older women in my research who said that when they were younger, the village pub wasn't a space for them. They weren't really accepted in that because obviously historically pubs have been gendered spaces. But through their local opening up things like a library and a book club, they felt they could go in the day. And once they'd started going in the day, that then gave them the confidence to start visiting with friends and family in the evening. It was really nice how their perceptions of the pub had also changed from being this space that when they were younger, they weren't meant to go into to now being a space that they could enjoy. How would you define the role of the pub space historically? How have things changed, do you think, overall based on your research? They were seen as very much a male domain, very much a space where men would go during or after work, before going home, to kind of meet with friends, refuel. They were always that social space, but they were more of a social space for the males. And also within that, there was different spaces for different types of residents. So, for example, land workers versus landowners. Whilst they were seen as social spaces and they were social spaces, they were also very divisive in some respects as well and not as inclusive as they are today. And I think that is starting to change. More people are recognising that actually now they are spaces that are open to all. They are spaces that are offering more. And there are spaces that people now are relying on, not just for kind of somewhere to drink, but actually for some kind of community support. A few weeks ago, we had a power cut and it was quite nice to be able to go into my own village pub and find out that, no, it actually wasn't our electric per se. It was the whole village's electric. They were handing out some candles 
and things like that until people got their electric back. So I think people are now recognising pubs as not only that space to drink, but also somewhere that is safe for them to go if they need some help, particularly in rural areas. It's, it's kind of like a third space that is not your home, it's not your work, but you know that you can get some support if you go into there. That is such a positive change. What do you think has caused this change? One of the things before the pandemic that I think had an impact was the recessions in 2008. So my research took place from 2010 onwards. And it was from that point where there'd been a lot of kind of cuts to local services, particularly in rural Lincolnshire. People were having to acclimatise to rural living and more austerity measures. And I think at that point, there became more of a value placed on rural services more generally. And I think the pub became seen within that light as one of those services particularly because obviously they've had to diversify in order for themselves to stay sustainable. Young people were starting to seek out employment more locally and the pub offered some of that through pot washing, waitress service, all those kind of things. So I think it was becoming more embedded within the community. I think a lot of pubs, I think a lot of landlords, I think a lot of kind of different people were starting to see how the pub is embedded within the community so let's take advantage of that to our advantage and diversify into things that make it even more community focused during the pandemic some pubs that i know for example started to do grocery delivery they started to do meals on wheels at that point people were starting to not think of the pub as a kind of a business and i think that's when it started to drive more into that community psyche that actually no the pub does give something there are people who said to me that one of the reason they moved to a village is because it's got a pub they will freely admit to me that they don't use the pub as much as they feel they should but they would have never moved to a village without a pub because in their view it's not a proper village the village pub is in all of our imaginations as the ideal place to go and they're the centre of life, I suppose, in a village. Whenever you look at village pubs, historically, only a small percentage of the village have ever actually used them. We're starting to see that more people are making use of them. For example, one-off meals for families, going to the library within them. So it's always been embedded within village life, but the perceptions and the experiences are changing. It was embedded within the kind of the male domain. Now it's becoming more embedded across the village demographic population and people are using it in a different way. What do you personally find most special about pubs? It's the history and heritage that's around them. I like being able to go in and see pictures on the wall that are located in that area and giving some history. Yeah, that's a, a really some really interesting points there from from Claire Markham, um, and and particularly the the role that that pubs play um, in in our more rural areas and, and and villages. And Camera continues to campaign on issues to support pubs and encourage us to use them and not lose them. You might have heard of assets of community value (ACVs). You can find out more about these on the Camera website. There's a, a section about them there. Uh, since 2012, community groups across England have managed to list more than 2,000 pubs as ACVs. And what it means is that if the pub comes up for sale as a development opportunity, then the community will be notified. They'll be given the first opportunity to bid to buy the pub, and it has worked in in a lot of cases. A listing can also be an important consideration in deciding 
affecting the outcome of a planning application for change of use and that could prevent planning permission being granted and thus save the pub but that's one of the reasons why we see so many community pubs because that's how they've they've come about um, and the community's bought it and, and taken it on and run it very successfully. Definitely. Now many of our listeners will know that Camera has also been very vocal on the subject of beer tax. We know that pubs are facing a triple tax whammy of one of the highest rates of beer duty in Europe, unfair business rates burden and of course VAT on top. This high level of tax is squeezing publicans and forcing them to either put up prices for consumers or close their doors forever. The good news is that the government is now committed to introducing a new lower rate of duty for beer sold in pubs, which should help to level the playing field between the price of beer sold in social community settings and the cheap alcohol that you can buy in supermarkets to consume at home. This is something that Camera will remain very active on and you've probably seen some of the emails encouraging you to write to your MP recently uh, in terms of trying to support some of our messaging around beer duty. I've been using those camera links to uh, send emails to my MP and they're really easy to use and I've had replies from my MP on all occasions so it really is worth taking the few moments uh, to follow those links and and send out the message and keep the the voice of the pub uh, being heard. Yeah, I've certainly written to my MP um, following a prompt from a camera email and I've got a feeling that my my MP where I live at the moment is, uh, is actually a minister who has an interest in some of the business activities um, from, from the Treasury concerning pubs. So, so I shall make sure that I do follow those emails and, and write to him again if I need to. Brilliant. Now, the Summer of Pub was a big campaign that we covered on the podcast last year. And during the pandemic, there was the Pubs Matter campaign too. And campaigning is a really big part of cameras activities. So if you're concerned that a pub near you might be closing permanently or being sold for a different use, then your branch may well be able to get involved. Now we're going to move over to our virtual host this month of Burton and it's time to hear from Nick Antona about the winter GBBF that the branch is hosting. I have two roles really when it comes to camera. I have my national role as the chairman of the organisation and then I also have my role as a member of Burton and South Derbyshire branch and the things I do for my branch as an ordinary member if you like. As the national chairman, I spend a lot of time dealing with national issues, lobbying Parliament and and our MPs, writing on behalf of the campaign to people in the Treasury to try and get our views across and get them to see how camera would like taxation, pub planning and all that sort of stuff carried out by them in central government. I also spend a lot of time chairing camera's board. As a national executive member, I am the chair of the board of directors and our board the national executive has to kind of operate in exactly the same way as a a company out there. We are a registered company and so we have to comply with company law and and all of that other legislation. So I do spend an inordinate amount of time doing board-like activities and board responsibilities there. But then there is the other side to being the national chairman. I do have that opportunity to get out and talk to the members and lead the local campaigns and lead other things, um, depending on where that is across the country, locally, wherever. But I do get that chance and therefore I do show up at regional meetings, beer festivals, branch meetings sometimes if needed. 
then you take a step back from that national role. In Burton and South Derbyshire, I, I hold a number of committee roles. I'm the publicity officer for the branch. I'm also the public affairs officer. So I'm at the forefront of communications with the local press and helping my chairman in the branch kind of fulfil that role of campaigning locally. I'm involved this year with the Great British Beer Festival winter, which we as Burton branch offered to host for this year. So we put our hands up and I've been involved helping with setting up and organising that event. And, and I've taken, again, the publicity role for that. And I've been responsible for pushing a lot of our social media publicity, communicating with the local press to get the story out there and, and signing off all of the campaigning and publicity material for that event. And then the final bit of that is I've helped run the national competition for the Champion Winter Beer of Britain, which we're hosting here in Burton during the festival. And there I've kind of helped with the beer order and making sure that we've got everything we need in place, setting up the team to support that. And Chief Judge and Coordinator Christine Krein, who's been inviting judges on our behalf to come along to the event. So it sounds like rather a lot. <laughs> it sounds rather a lot going on, Nick. Tell us something about the festival and the setting this year. This year, the Great British Beer Festival winter is being hosted in Burton-on-Trent in the historic Town Hall. The Town Hall was built back in Victorian times by the Bass family for the town. It's a beautiful Gothic interior, to be honest, um, with stone arches up the sides and passageways uh, with a nice vaulted roof and a stage and, and a balcony. And then it's also got a number of other supporting rooms we're taking over the whole town hall this year, which we normally do for our own beer festival in Burton to host the Great British Beer Festival. It's a historic building which the Burton branch have run nearly 40 beer festivals at. So we, we know very well how to work uh, with the building and make the, the building work for us and make sure that we utilise all the space available to get as much beer in and as many customers through the door as we possibly can. This year we are opening on the Thursday early. We normally, as a Burton Beer Festival, wouldn't open until Thursday evening. But because we're hosting a competition and we're judging during the day, we've decided to open at 12 o'clock on the Thursday of the week. We are looking to get the competition over with by about one o'clock so that we can open the competition room for people to come and try the champion beers as and when they're available. And then we will open as normal all through the Thursday until 11 o'clock. And then on the Friday, we are open again from 11 till 11. And on Saturday, we're open from 11 till 10, I believe. What we'll be looking to do during that time is bring a range of beers from across the country. Being a national festival, we have gone out of our way to try and bring beers in, not just for the competition, which are national and cover the whole range of the country. We've tried to make sure that the main hall offering reflects a national festival as well. So we will have beers from Scotland right down to, to Cornwall and across to Kent and Essex and East Anglia and Wales, all in that festival available for people to try. We've gone out of our way this year to sort of bring in some quality local brewers and all the local breweries in Burton and surrounding areas in the branch area were represented at that festival. And we've also brought in some great sponsors in the form of Titanic from North Staffordshire, which is in the county we're hosting the festival in. And we've also got Thornbridge, who's got a brewery bar at the event. So there will be some great beers on offer. We've also thought of all other types of drinkers, so we will be having a cider bar. A range of ciders from across the country, and looking at the list here, from Herefordshire, from Devon, 
from Glamorgan in Wales, Dorset and Leicestershire. So we've, we've got a, a range of ciders from across the country. And then to complement that, there will be a gin bar, which will offer various craft gins selected by Norrie Porter, who's running the bar for us. Norrie was involved with running the bar in London in August. So we've got some experienced gin people there. Uh, we've got some quality cider and we've got some excellent beer all complemented by local food from a a local retailer who is providing the hot and cold food offering this year. Sounds like you've got it all covered. Sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to it. Is there anything in particular, Nick, that you personally are looking forward to? I always loved the competition element, having previously been the awards director and being responsible for Champion Beer of Britain and Champion Winter Beer of Britain. I'm really looking forward and having seen and been quite closely involved with making sure that the um, beers that we are going to be judging for Winter Beer of Britain are there. I'm really keen that that goes well and we come out with an outstanding winner. I'm really looking forward to being involved with that competition on the day, being able to talk to all those independent judges that we've brought in and share the experience of being involved with selecting the champion beer this year. Absolutely brilliant. And I'm sure many people who are visiting you up there and visiting the Great British Beer Festival will be popping in to some of the local pubs in your branch. How are you getting on with your pub of the year competition up there, Nick? Obviously, last year's winner, the Old Royal Oak in the Marketplace, is going to be open as a, a Founds pub, their first pub. They've done really well out of it this year. The support they've had from the people in Burton and visitors are far and wide coming to, to check them out. And obviously, they went on further into the pub of the year for Staffordshire. Unfortunately, they didn't win it. But then the local pub did have to compete with the overall national champion, the Tamworth Tap, which is 10 minutes down the road on the train. So they did well in the regional competition, but unfortunately didn't get through. At the moment, this time of year is when we in the branch are selecting our next pub of the year, and we will be announcing that in March. But between the beginning of December and March, we have a team of judges. There's about eight, nine of us who are visiting the shortlisted pubs. And we've got 15 pubs on that shortlist. We're getting round the branch area independently and judging them against the national criteria. It's not an easy job. We have some fantastic pubs in and around Burton branch area. The festival programme, which is available imminently, contains a list of all those pubs in the shortlist and others that we recommend. And it's the centrepiece of the programme with a map of all the other pubs to visit while you're up here in Burton and the pubs are looking forward to supporting you some of them are putting on wonderful supporting beer festivals some of them are putting on tap takeovers with breweries coming over to have their range of beers in the pubs in addition to what they normally serve others that are opening early one of our local market pubs the Waybridge doesn't normally open till three or four o'clock in the afternoon it's opening at lunchtime and then there's others that are laying on special music events just to support the event in Burton. I bet everyone's looking forward to coming up, visiting the pubs and obviously the highlight being the festival. Fantastic. The comments I've seen all over the posts on Facebook and direct contacts we've had asking for beer lists and everything. It is how very much people are looking forward to the opportunity to come into Burton and experience Burton pubs and the festival. A lot of them are making a day of it. A lot of them are making the weekend of it. Most of the hotels seem to have been fully booked. So people are having to look at further afield. So it's going to be a very successful week, weekend for Burton and the festival and the pubs. The GBBF winter runs between the 16th and 18th of February, so it may already have passed by the time that uh, you you hear this podcast, but if if you're listening as one of our early listeners, it's in the beautiful Burton Town Hall. The tickets are unfortunately sold out, 
but hopefully you've managed to get tickets, you managed to get along there and have an amazing time. And, and also local pubs in Burton are all set up for people visiting the festival. There's a map in the programme to help visitors navigate their way around. And some of the pubs are running small festivals of their own as well. So if you're local to the area, but perhaps you hadn't been planning to go to the festival, hadn't managed to get tickets this year, then uh, pop, pop into Burton and support some of those pubs running their own festivals as well. I have to echo what you've just said there, Claire. Some of the um, comments I've seen on social media and elsewhere in the run-up to the festival uh, really outline how much local pubs are pushing the boat out to try and cater for people who are visiting uh, Burton over the over the few days that the festival's on. So if you are up there and you're planning to go to the festival, do try to get along to some of the local pubs as well. And don't forget, of course, that everything we, um, we, we mentioned on the podcast, you can find more details about them on the show notes as well and all the web links that, that you need. And we've been talking about the Summer of Pub campaign earlier. Now, I don't know whether... Um, either of you have ever taken part in an ale trail but they have certainly been a feature of summer of pub last year it's an opportunity to get out and visit pubs that you might not be familiar with and many branches have got involved with them in town and city centres I suppose you might think there's you know is this just a pub crawl but actually with specific camera branch events they make an effort to publicize ale trails they encourage people to visit perhaps the less well-known ones the slightly off the beaten track pubs and and again as we've mentioned they often tie in with the local beer festival as well i haven't actually done any ale trails myself but growing up in the town of dumfries in southwest scotland looking to the the neighboring region of ayrshire and wigtonshire where they've got a very active camera branch and they promoting a, a walking and bus trail on the Isle of Arran. Now the trail that they've laid out includes visits to eight pubs around the island, including a visit to the island's uh, brewery as well. Four of those pubs uh, offer accommodation, so there's no excuse not to make the most of, of staying on the beautiful Isle of Arran. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit the island a couple of years ago as part of celebrations for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and as well as enjoying some of the Isle of Arran Brewery's beers on the island itself. I stopped in for a tasting at the whiskey distillery on the island and, and Alison I'm sure that is something you would love to do one day. Oh absolutely I love the Isle of Arran whiskey in fact it's been Burns uh, night in the last couple of weeks and I've run a lot of whiskey tastings to celebrate that and we've been showing the wonderful Robert Burns single malt which is distilled by the Arran distillery and absolutely a delicious sweet dram. I'm slightly disappointed to learn that there aren't very many cider trails, which I think should certainly be a thing alongside ale trails and particularly in the better known cider areas. I did hear of a couple, Nottingham Camera Branch had a cider saunter last year with 26 different pubs to visit as part of it. All of the pubs were stocking a range of draft real cider and perry, including at least one from local East Midlands producers. If you visited eight pubs, it meant you qualified for a free pint of cider or perry at the Robin Hood Beer and Cider Festival in October. Around half the participants covered 16 or more pubs on the trail, but only one person got to all 26, and that was Amy Chandler, who also happens to be the cider bar manager at the festival. Well done, Amy. Good work. Camera Branch in Cambridge last summer encouraged their members to design their own ale or cider trails as part of Camera's Summer of Pub campaign by making a map available and then suggested they made up their own route either on foot around the historic city centre or public transport if going further afield. 
Yeah, I'm aware of quite a few similar to that in, in my part of the world. I think both the Ipswich and East Suffolk branch and the Colchester and North East Essex branch have in the past had similar trails to, to the one that you mentioned in Nottingham where you have a card and it gets stamped at every pub that you visit and then if you go to all of them or if you go to a certain number you can claim a prize if you visit the related beer festival as well. But I'm more interested as well in some places where there are ale trails that, are, although they're supported by camera, they're actually run by other organisations. So in Bury St Edmunds, the local business improvement district uses its app to run an ale trail. And that features not just pubs, but breweries and independent beer shops in, in Bury St Edmunds as well. So it'd be great to hear of, of some of the camera branches perhaps putting an ale trail on an app. And if your branch has already done that, do, do let us know and perhaps we can feature it in a future podcast. Yeah, there's also a superb um, beer trail and I think a craft cider tour up in Leeds from my fellow pommelier, David Dixon. So if you're up in that area, that's probably worth a try. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a bit peckish now. And it's time to join Christian Gott over in Jersey and we're going to have our live cook-along. I'm going to be making uh, a real classic dish that takes part of our French heritage. So we're very close to the coast of France. Uh, a lot of our street names and place names are in French and the sort of semi-official language of Jersey is, is an old sort of Norman style French. And we are, we were part of the protectorate of the Duke of Normandy. And for a long time, the, the toast was always to the Duke of, of Normandy rather than to the to the monarch in Britain and that the monarch in Britain held that title as well. Um, so I'm gonna make Moles Normandy or Alan Normandy, which is made with cider instead of wine. That is a really, really classic sort of French Jersey dish. Brilliant, that sounds absolutely delicious. Now, you're gonna be cooking that with cider. I always wonder, Christian, why is it with that lovely fresh seafood that we do cook that with either wine or beer or cider obviously we're focusing in on beer and cider with this podcast but what does that do for the cooking beer and cider does does lots of things but principally what we're looking at here with this dish is we're looking at the acidity and whether it's wine or cider or lemon juice you you need something to to lift and acidity one of the things it does is it gives a, a freshness and it lifts the, the, the flavours of the dish. You can use it as a seasoning. If you think of when you get a nice piece of, uh, of, of cob battered and you squirt that lemon juice all over the top of it, you can almost use it as an alternative to salt and pepper. So the reason we're putting uh, the cider into this dish is to, to cut through the richness of the cream. Jersey cream is really, really rich. Um, mussels are quite a rich dish as well. So that acidity just lifts the flavours. It's not just any old cider you're using today, though, is it, Christian? You're using something very special. Yep, so keeping in with using the local produce, local mussels, local cream, um, I'm using a La Robaline dry cider. So that's from uh, a producer on the island. And again, it comes back to that Norman heritage. There's, there's a, a tradition of, of growing a lot of apples and, and cider production. Um, across the Channel Islands, actually, not just in Jersey, but in Guernsey as well. So what's the first step today? We're going to peel. Now, um, on the recipe that uh, we're going to be using, I've put shallots, but you can use a, a small onion. Effectively, what we're doing is we're using uh, a version of uh, a mousse marinière, where you would use white wine, and we're just going to replace it with the cider. So what I'm doing now is I'm peeling the onion, ready to go into my pan. 
and I'm going to start chopping that in just a minute when I've taken the uh, the outer skin off. What's yep. next then, Christian, after the onion? So the next ingredient I'm going to do is bacon. Now, um, different recipes, if you look this up online, some moles Normandy use uh, button mushrooms finely sliced, but the majority of them use bacon. So I'm using some uh, smoked bacon because I like the flavour of smoked bacon. So what we're going to do is we're just going to sweat um, the bacon and the onion down for about two or three minutes until the onions are starting to soften and the bacon is starting to cook through. We've got the bacon in, we've got the onion in. What's going to go in the pan next? So the next thing we're going to put in in a moment, uh, and you will hear that one because that's going to be quite noisy, is the mussels. So I've prepared the mussels in advance. Um, there's a lot of, um, I think, stress when people talk about mussels and people sort of worry about how to do them. Um, there's a, a few quite simple tips. If you get mussels from a, a, a reputable fishmonger, they should be fresh enough. If you're worried, what you do is when you take them home, if they look open, if you give the mussel a quick squeeze, if it closes, that means it's still alive and it's fine to eat. If it doesn't close, then you discard that and you don't eat it. The second one you do is you discard any mussels that, and I've just found one that I've missed earlier, any mussels that have got a broken shell, they won't be alive, so you get rid of any of those. And the mussels that you've got left, give them a rinse into the tap, don't store them in tap water, they don't like the chlorine in tap water, so just give them a rinse, pour that off, and you should be great to go. So are we ready to cook them, Christian? We are. My onions are starting to go clear. My bacon is starting to look cooked. So I'm going to tip, there we go, into my pan. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to steam the mussels. So they're going to produce a little bit of juice themselves, but we need that cooking liquor. And this is where our cider comes in. We're pouring a generous glugging if you've got a pan this is the time now where you can just if you've got to manage to you've got a pan with a lid is you just put a lid on and so what's going to happen is that that cider and the mussel juices are going to start to steam and that's going to cook the mussels and this is a really quick process it's about three to four minutes wow okay and how's it smelling because obviously we're all desperate to know what that fragrance is like if there is something about mussels when they're cooking and it is absolutely amazing. So what's the next step once once we're ready? So the next step is, now if you were doing a classic mousse marinière with the wine, you would you would leave that. And if you're dairy intolerant, you could you can quite happily just use that as it is, serve it, just chop some parsley. Check the seasoning. You're not going to need salt. Mussels uh, are salty enough and you've got bacon which is salty as well. But you might need a little bit of black pepper in there and some parsley. And it's still going to give you an amazingly tasty sort of cooking liquor to dip some crusty bread in. But we are going to go the whole hog and we're going to put some thick cream in there as well just to really sort of... Uh, finish the dish up. It's terrible, isn't it? It's oh, like 10 o'clock and both of us are thinking, <laughs> I'm going to have to go and eat now. I really am. I'm so envious. Yeah. Yeah. I should I, have just I, got I, a flight to Jersey and St Helier and I, come and see you. I don't think I've ever eaten mussels at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I'm stood here thinking, well, that's my breakfast. Cream's in, yeah. So I'm looking and, and I think probably it's, it's a, a time now just to sort of tell 
the people who are listening. So you should hopefully see your muscles are starting to open and there's little plump fat muscles all looking absolutely delicious. So I've put the cream in and what we're going to do now is we're going to leave the lid off because what we want to do now is we want to reduce it and we want to sort of thicken it up the cream and the cooking liquor is just going to reduce down and it's just going to make it a little bit thicker so it coats the mussels nicely and it makes that delicious sauce that sort of everybody thinks of when they think about eating mussels. I'm using curly parsley and if you hold it tightly in your hand you can use your scissors again rather than trying to I know chopping parsley is another one of those sort of on a on a chopping board it's uh, it's a bit of a pain if you don't have the sharpest of uh, chef's knives available so I just sort of hold it really tightly in my fingers and uh, just snip it with the scissors that's going in a little uh, grate of fresh black pepper going in there as well mm. so that's bubbling away the, the mussels are nicely coated with the sauce and, and that's it, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of almost done there. Wow, um, that is great, Another it's minute, great. it's such an easy, nutritious dish to do, you know, and it's great for people who have got busy lives and, you know, for a supper dish, it's wonderful. I'd really like to know, how's the cider drinking? I'm sure you've got a little left of that uh, La Robeline cider. Poured myself a little, a, a little bit out of the bottle, but unfortunately, again, at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's quite a big bottle and like, you don't need that much in the recipe. So, That'll be fine in um, the fridge until later. Yeah, it'll be fine in the fridge until later. <laughs> I mean, the first thing you notice is it's got a, a, a really fine uh, a mousse, that, that it's tiny bubbles, and that's because they, 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 the Normandy way of making um, cider is almost like champagne so it's got a, a, a similar style yeast and it's got those really fine bubbles there is a little bit of sediment in the bottle so the bot it's bottle conditioned um, and they uh, leave a little bit of yeast in there an extra yeast in there so it, it re-ferments in the bottle so it's got that natural fizz just like champagne but they don't take the sediment out and when you taste it I mean it's Oh, it's just Jersey summer and it's floral and it's, oh, it's so lovely. I can just be sat in a meadow somewhere under an apple tree and it's, it's crisp. It's, they do a dry and a medium. I'm trying the dry. It's crisp. It's bright. It's refreshing. It's, it's lovely. It sounds beautiful. Now, you've got two real cider makers there on, on the island of Jersey. Apart from La Robeline, which you're tasting at the moment, it looks absolutely fantastic. There's also the Le Maire Wine Estate um, that are making cider on Jersey, just a little way around the coast. Uh, yeah. And then over in Guernsey, you've got Roquette Cider Farm. Is that the right pronunciation? Yes, that is. That's, uh, that's, that's very, very, uh, very good uh, pronunciation. Well, so... Um, La Mer do a whole range. They do wine and cider. Uh, and Roquette is very, very popular in Guernsey. And a lot of the pubs uh, sell it on draft as well. So La Reverline Cider, the, the people there, they have, um, they have quite a, a big events business. So if we have any fates or, or festivals, they have a, a, a bar. They, sell, um, they make their own sausages. They sell uh, loads of delicious cider on tap, obviously. Yeah, it's big business over here. It's, Superb. It's, it's very, you know, it's a very important part of our hospitality industry. 
That's fantastic. And of course, what I would do, what I have done, is take a look on the Real Cider and Perry producers map that's on the camera website. Uh, and if I'm going off anywhere on holiday, like if I were coming to Jersey or Guernsey, I can take a look at that map and I could see where the Real Cider producers are and go and seek them out and do and have a visit. So that's gone on my bucket list now, Christian. I shall be coming over and uh, getting myself some cider. Uh, brilliant. Thank you, Christian, so much. Um, I don't know whether you're about to start tucking into your muscles. I am, yeah. I'm going to transfer them to a bowl. I'm going to take a nice picture so that you can uh, have a picture. I'm going to I'll make you really jealous and send you a, a, a picture of exactly <laughs> what I'm going to tuck into. Um, and then, yeah, it's breakfast. Cheers, Christian. Have your wonderful breakfast. And thanks so much for cooking that for us. Now you know what that means, don't you? I want to go back to Jersey and Guernsey and visit those cider makers there. I actually spent a couple of months on Jersey and Guernsey opening restaurants in the early 2000s and I really enjoyed it. Now I've got a reason to go back, eat Christian's food and visit cider makers. Christian will be back with us again in a couple of episodes time to cook with beer and some of the recipes look mouth-watering. If you're inspired to cook that fab-sounding mool and cedra dish, then hop onto Christian's blog and there's a link to it in the show notes to this episode. As a long-time listener and now presenter of the pod, I'm trying to think back through all the episodes I've listened to, and I think we're really pushing the boundaries this time with a live cook-along, certainly the first one that I can recall. Of course, mussels is a dish that you can cook very quickly, so it's a perfect dish to showcase in this segment. And again, just thinking of, the, of mussels and beer, it brings back memories of going to Belgo restaurants in London and enjoying some, some fresh mussels there alongside some terrific Belgian beers. Ah, oh, Belgo, Simon. I used to work with them and, in fact, uh, helped them put together their Beer Master programme uh, to teach the teams all about the Belgian beers. It's one of the places I got my obsession with Belgian beer from. Well, the recipe sounds really delicious. I... Unfortunately, I developed an intolerance to mussels some years ago and haven't really been able to eat them since, which is a shame because I really love them. And I, I do sort of occasionally try to eat one or two and see that whether the intolerance thing will go away and I can build up tolerance again. I'll spare you the details, but it hasn't really worked. Oh, Claire, I'm so sorry. That's a shame. Um, I've got some good news as well because Camera have just announced... Very many congratulations are due to the club of the year, and that's Marden Village in Kent. Clubs in this competition are selected by camera volunteers and judged on their atmosphere, decor, welcome, service, value for money, customer mix, and of course, the quality of their beer and cider. Runners-up this year include the Cheltenham Motor Club in Cheltenham, Dobcross Band Social Club in Greater Manchester, and Barnton Cricket Club in Merseyside, Cheshire. Marden Village Club in Kent was completely renovated in 2017 to produce a lovely light, airy and friendly atmosphere. This is a Grade 2 listed community hub and it boasts six real ales, generally from local microbreweries and local real ciders. There's a snooker and darts team for its members. It sounds amazing. Congratulations to Simon Banfield, Marden Village Club Stewart and his team. I can only echo what you said there, Alison, and congratulations to, to Simon and his team, and it certainly sounds like a, a club that's worth visiting if you're down in the Kent region. Now, as we come to the end of this episode, your regular reminder that you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching for Pubs, Pints, People. And, of course, we'd love to hear any feedback or suggestions for future episodes from you, either via the social channels or, of course, you can drop us an email at podcast and of course, in between episodes, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news from Camera in Camera's online newsletter, What's Brewing, at 
wb.camera.org.uk. And next time we're here, we're off to, well, virtually off to Manchester. And we'll be chatting to Matthew Curtis about his new book. Sean will be coming along to step in as a guest host as well. And there's so many fantastic beers and breweries to come from the Manchester area that uh, it'll be a, a lot of fun. I've, I'm already making a note to get in touch with a, a friend of mine who knows some fantastic pubs in Manchester so that I can um, make sure I've got my only here for the beer pub selected in fact i might have to do what alison did and have a, a list of about 25 of them i think i have to say if, if we were to get together to record an episode in person together i think manchester would be one of the cities really high on the list of places we'd want to to convene together in absolutely uh, but before we do go let's have our last orders from us all and uh, i recently had my first taste of a beer from neptune brewery on merseyside uh, I tried their fantastic oatmeal stout. It's called Abyss. It's a 5% ABV, a lovely, smooth and chocolatey hints of licorice, a little bit of coffee flavour in there as well. We found it on cask at a local real ale pub in Ipswich, actually, but I think you can get it in cans as well, so perhaps check availability on the brewery's website there. Uh, we'd driven to the pub, unfortunately, so we had to take a takeout home with us to enjoy another pint of it at home as well, but uh, I should be looking out for that one again. I've seen Neptune on, on cask in a few pubs and also beer festivals and I have to say I've never been disappointed with any of the, the beers from Neptune so definitely a brewery whose beers are worth seeking out. Uh, in terms of my last orders my recommendation is Thornbridge's Carlotta, a 7% Mexican stout with cocoa and chilies. If you're wondering how good it is I couldn't resist snapping up a case of 12 which was part of Thornbridge's January sale on their website so one down 11 cans to go. That sounds fantastic. Uh, this month uh, I have been so excited. We've been running a fantastic beer on cars called, from Burning Sky Brewery called their Extra Stock Ale 2020. This is uh, an amazing old-fashioned style of beer uh, that they have taken a long time to produce. It's a beer that was traditionally kept and it picks up some fascinating flavours from mixed fermentation. So this was one with some incredible aromas, reminded me a little bit of a lambic ale. So we had sort of lemon and smoke, uh, full of flavour on the mouth with some fruit and black tea. It was something really special. It's not a light beer at 7.2%, but certainly one to try if you can. I think there's still some available in bottles from Burning Sky's own website. For cider, this month I've been enjoying a single apple variety called Port Wine of Glastonbury, uh, which is from Hex Family Cidery in Somerset. And I've also had a very special experience as part of a London wassail. Now in January, it's a tradition uh, to celebrate the wassail and we did that in style with One Tree Hill Cider, who are down in Honor Oak Park in South London. And we were making a lot of noise in the orchard, pouring cider around the roots of the tree and hanging toast in the branches in order to uh, praise the tree uh, and make sure that it's ready for a fantastic harvest in the coming year. So a really exciting event. Yeah, and um, talking of cider, um, before we finish on our last orders, because I did say in the last episode that I was going to try and um, make a New Year's resolution to have a few more ciders over this year. And I tried one from Bernard Cider in Norfolk, to, at Bannum in Norfolk, and Monty's Double. I think it's quite a well-known cider, actually, from them. Uh, it's 6%, though, so it was a little bit strong. Um, I think I only had a half this time around, but I'll, I'll certainly be looking out for it again. Uh, found it at a local pub 
pub and uh, and really nice to, to taste a, a, a locally produced cider I should be looking out for theirs uh, again in uh, some some of the other ones that they they produce because they're all fermented by naturally occurring yeast nothing added nothing taken away so um, a lovely range that, that they have from South Norfolk but that's just about it from us for this episode. Um, we need to say thank you, of course, as we always do to the team behind the podcast, without whom we couldn't do all this. Uh, that's the team at Camera Headquarters, of course, who um, who helped putting it all together, our script writers, our team of editors as well, of course, all our contributors and interviewees and interviewers who take part in, in the podcast. Thank you to everyone for this episode, but a special thank you, not just for this episode, but for the entire series and the entire podcast since we began and that's to Katie Wiles one of the first presenters of the podcast but not only that she was the inspiration behind it without Katie the podcast wouldn't be here she brought it the first episode of pubs pints people it was released in lockdown in April 2020 and she started everything we can't thank her enough really Katie you've done brilliantly I think we're going to hear a few little clips from those early days of Katie Welcome to the Camera Podcast, pubs, pints and people. Hello everybody, it's the Camera Podcast. We are live in lockdown. I mean, it sounds like we're in a pub somewhere, but actually the reality is, folks, like many of us across the country, we are indeed at home. So this is the inaugural podcast from the Campaign for Real Ale. We want you to stay connected with the brewing and pubs industry, learn a bit more whilst we're in lockdown, keep up to date with what's going on, and just have a bit of fun. We've got some great topics coming up for you. We're going to be speaking to people like Roger Protz about writing, learning all about cider and the history behind that and the history of beer making. So there's some great topics coming up. We'll be having really good interviews and today we're going to be learning about the unsung heroes of the beer industry. Let's all raise our glasses to Katie. Cheers! Cheers! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.